Welcome to the Football by Football Podcast. And welcome back to the Football by Football Podcast. This is Matt Chatham, your host. This is NFL in the game. Fired up this week to dive into some playoffs. It's really what we've been waiting for all year. It's wild card weekend coming up this weekend. And on the phone with us today, we've got Brady Quinn. What's up, Brady? What's going on, Matt? I'm excited, man, this, uh, this upcoming weekend. We finally get to see if some of these teams can kind of continue their hot streaks and enter into the playoffs. Yeah, it's a it's a good point uh, that that hot streaks I think are sort of the name of the game with a, with several of these teams we're going to be dealing with on Wild Card Weekend. Uh, first and foremost, we'll start with one that uh, hits home for one, one of our FBF guys, former Packer Brady Papinga. Uh, Brady's Packers have really been on the opposite side, not hot so much, kind of uh, not losing the the NFC North on the final weekend at home in Lambeau. Now traveling to. Uh, the FedEx field out there in Maryland to take on the Redskins and the Redskins themselves. I know they're not going to get credit as a, as a, as a threat to, I think with a lot of people in the playoffs, but they do come in as one of the hotter teams out there averaging over 33 points a game in the last month. Uh, Kirk cousins really sort of being on fire, really looking like he's ready to take over that job. Uh, how do you see this, this Packers Redskins game sort of shaking out? You know, it's always tough for, for me, Matt, to ever pick against a guy with the capabilities like Aaron Rodgers whenever you see a matchup like this. Right. But, you know, I, I really put a lot of onus into him last week when they're playing for the division, playing for home field advantage versus the Minnesota Vikings, and he just needs more help. I mean, bottom line, you know, if, if you don't have a number one wide receiver that can get separation, then you've got to have a running game, which they've been really inconsistent with this year. And if you don't have a running game, then you've got to have a really good offensive line of providing protection to allow you time for those guys to get open or for you to be able to buy time to, to be able to make the throws necessary to win tight games. And the offensive line isn't giving them that sort of opportunity. And then on the flip side of it, the defense. You know, whenever Clay Matthews is back at that middle linebacker position, they just can't get the pass rush that they need to. Um, it seems like they always have to bring them on the, on the outside edge uh, or even on the same side as Julius Peppers be effective and uh, that's the other element where you know I just don't feel like the Green Bay Packers right now are kind of hitting on all cylinders and even though the the Washington Redskins are maybe a a less talented team in some areas I still think they've got a much better chance of winning this game in part because it's home in part because they've been on a roll lately and just a simple fact that you know history has kind of told us that Aaron Rodgers has not played well on the road in the postseason uh, I, I don't necessarily think that'll, you know, be a huge you know difference for them in this game because the Washington Redskins secondary has been banged up and they struggled at times. But uh, I kind of like the Redskins in this matchup, and I feel just completely awkward saying that. <laughs> it doesn't feel that way. I, I feel like I, I would have never said that going into Week 17, uh, into last week of the season. Yeah, I, I, the Redskins were a nice story, but I think in a lot of people's heads, you know, for me, I had to watch them pretty closely because they played the Patriots this week or earlier this season, so I had to study them quite a bit. I mean, passively, I've watched them put up some big fantasy numbers down the stretch with Jordan Reed and 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 Kirk and all those kinds of things. But you just, to me, always sort of sat in that space of nice little story but let's be honest the nfc is pretty beat up they go eight and eight or whatever it is they pulled off win a win a beat down division but it's easy to sort of be slightly condescending with them and just not take them terribly seriously until you start studying them and i think i've, I've gone through a sort of a transition both in watching them a little more closely in week 17 understanding they were going to be in this tournament 
And then now looking at them hardcore, and I wrote on them this week, uh, sort of studying what's going on with the Packers offense and, and, and how it might apply to how the Redskins play. And I'm not going to lie, it was a little bit of an eye-opener. Uh, I think you forget about some of the people that the, that the Redskins have on defense. Uh, they're decent with Murphy and with Kerrigan at the two outside linebackers slash defensive end spots. Those guys have made more plays than I guess I was aware of until I flipped the tape on. Terrence Knighton at, at the defensive tackle position is a guy who had migraine issues during the season and missed some time, or it was least a question mark, would you know not practice all week, then play on the weekend. That was going on about the middle of the season when I was watching that defense. And at the time, they'd had, they'd had a beat-up secondary, the, the interior issues I just mentioned, and they just weren't nearly, I think, on the same page as they are now. But as I flipped on the tape and watched from a week ago, Knighton was a beast. And Knighton uh, against the Bears, I watched him against the Bears, I watched him uh, uh, blanket maybe against the Cowboys, I believe. And he's still a rep-limited guy, 355-pound guy, big dude. But it, it sort of took me back to a couple years ago when the Patriots faced Denver out in Denver and Knighton kind of jumped onto the national scene. I don't think he was a guy that a lot of people are aware of, but you would see this guy just walking big time guards, pro bowl guards uh, into the backfield. Uh, if ever he gets singled really just ruining pockets all by himself. So you had referenced sort of the issues the Packers have been having with their offensive line, Josh Sitton, pro bowl guard, great player for them had to play right tackle last week. Yeah, I believe it was right tackle last week. Uh, sort of in, in post game says, "Hey, I, you know, a little fish out of water." I, I came out of the game thinking I'm a guard. <laughs> you know, so it will yeah. be interesting to see how the shuffling is treated. Uh, but I think how they handle Knighton and how that sort of health issue at the two tackle spots uh, fleshes out with the Packers, I think will determine a lot because it 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 plays into what you talked about, whether or not the running game can be consistent. And they're frustrating to watch. I mean, one run, Eddie Lacy gets five or six yards. The next carry, it's three or four minus. And they had seven minus plays in the running game uh, a week ago against the Vikings. And that doesn't count the sacks. It's just something you can't overcome. So if they get that squared away at the offensive line and they don't have the negative plays, all of a sudden I, I think slightly different of them. We'll see. Yeah, I'll be curious, too, and, and to your point, when you talked about some of the competition they played against as you're going through the film study, I mean, these are the teams they beat kind of down the stretch. Now, they won in Dallas uh, the last game of the season. That was against a fourth-string quarterback and Kellen Moore at that point in time. At Philly, they won as well. We kind of saw the, the up-and-down season that they'd had uh, versus the Buffalo Bills, who ended the season with a losing record, if I'm not mistaken, at Chicago as well, another team who ended with a 6-10 and record. And then you've got, you know, the Cowboys, who they lost to in a tight game. And you're saying to yourself, you know, all right, uh, at that point, it's a division opponent, so that maybe plays a factor. But at the same time, it was Washington really beat down the stretch that makes you think that uh, they're up to par with the Green Bay Packers because they lost, lost to the Panthers on November 22nd. Um, they lost to the Patriots on November 8th. And you know, in between those two games, you had the Giants and you had the Saints. Um, and both teams you know, struggled at times this season. So it's interesting. I'll just be curious to see, you know, with the home field advantage, if that'll play a factor and really – a team that's on a hot streak right, right now, how good they truly are. Um, because I right. kind of felt the same way about the Seattle Seahawks when they were on a hot streak, and all of a sudden they lost to the St. Louis Rams. And you're going, all right, 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 team. right. And then they go to Arizona and pound the Cardinals. So uh, we'll have to see how this plays out with the Redskins and Packers. Yeah, I think that's a great point. You, you try to use sort of the the comparable thing, and sometimes you get burned. And I, I've done that, I mean, with doing the locks throughout the season, talking about sort of some of the matchups. You, you'd find a team that 
really was untested, so had no reason to do better the next week. And then all of a sudden, what? Or, or in the example you made, they go out and St. Louis kind of, you know, shits the bed, I guess, against the, against the Rams. And all of a sudden, they come back against the perennial best team. I mean, everyone's looking at, at the Cardinals as, good Lord, this is the most balanced team in football and maybe, maybe, a, maybe a Super Bowl contender. And then they beat them down. So it's really tough to sort of get a grip on things. And I think the Redskins fit right in that category that we don't have a lot of information because, as you mentioned, the quarterbacks they'd faced, I think in part why I went back to Jay Cutler is because I wanted to find a guy that, again, Jay Cutler's obviously well below, uh, not, many notches below Aaron. Rodgers, but I think he has similar attributes and that he can fling it. He throws from a lot of different arm angles. He's comfortable moving out of the pocket a little bit. Aaron's better than that, obviously, but it was the first guy as I was scrolling down that I thought at least the offense might mirror a little bit more what the Packers might try to do. One thing I'll hit on here real quickly as we sort of exit out of this game, uh, one of the things that I noticed that that I found a little bit odd and some I, I don't know if there's sensitive to the point is the right word, but I thought it was important to sort of denote to people that the Packers absolutely have problems with their wide receiver group getting separation, uh, winning on one, winning man to man. Uh, I think Mike Zimmer actually talked about it last week with the Vikings, uh, with Chris Collinsworth. He, they talked about it on air about how they had really intended going into that week 17 game to, to play a lot of press man, you know, to really get up their face because they didn't feel like they could handle it. And, or at least they needed to be proven, proven wrong first before they'd get out of it. As I watched tape on them, I thought, you know what, that's actually, that's actually pretty accurate. Uh, it, the Packers cannot sit and drop back passing. They can just not be a team to put Aaron in the gun like they've done in years past and just let him pick people apart. But when Aaron gets under center and they don't have those oddball negative plays where somebody just blows a blocking assignment – if they start getting three and four yard runs and then the play action off of it is actually pretty good for them. Devontae Adams, all of a sudden he shows up off play action. Of course, James Jones, all of a sudden making some plays off play action, Randall Cobb, same thing. So yeah. And Rogers at the, at the tight end position, I just think they're a team that is so incredibly dependent upon establishing a little bit of run game and making sure that the passing game comes off of that and not getting behind seven points, 10 points, 14 points to where they have to sit in the gun and just do drop back because then they're screwed. So it'll be fun to watch this game and kind of watch and see if they can stick to a script. And if they get off it, they're not built like they were in years past it to overcome that. All right, so you're heading on to the next game. We're going to look here at uh, the Minnesota Vikings, which I think is a, a little bit of an interesting case because I wrote on them in the middle of the season and they were a team that just had to respect. But every time you walk on, watch them on film, you know, I kind of to your earlier point, they weren't playing a lot of people. They put together these crazy modest offensive output games, but they do have a great running back. They run the ball pretty well with their offensive line. Uh, but they're, we're now in this situation again where they just put up, uh, I don't remember the number off the top of my head, but I think Teddy Bridgewater had right around 100 yards passing, something super crazy low. Do you remember the exact number from last week, Brady? I, I don't recall the exact number, but yeah, like you said, it was definitely below 200. It was low. Let's put it that way. But then, you know, they go ahead and put up a nice performance against the Packers. And it's like, what, what do we make of this? The Packers are a little bit reeling. So what does that mean? But now they draw at home, at least the Seattle Seahawks. So, you know, if, if you believe in this kind of thinking, the notion of the team that nobody wants to play, that kind of thing. So it's a weird matchup in that the Vikings are very much someone that went through most teams they should have this year, stayed respectable, didn't really have any games where they just completely stubbed their toe and surprised people. But when they're really, really tested, 
there are they can be outclassed. I think they you see some stress in their game because Stephon Diggs, nice young wide receiver, but you know he's a guy that'll get eight or nine targets one week and then one or none the next week. You just don't know if he's there. Mike Wallace hasn't been a big part of it. Uh, Kyle Rudolph at the tight end, same thing. Occasionally he's in there. Occasionally they're not using him. So it's just an offense that's very sporadic. Uh, I think Teddy is just meant to be back there and prevent turnovers, you know, be very game manager type of thing. And hopefully they make their hay on the ground, kick a lot of field goals with Blair Walsh and, and, and hope that's enough. In your view, Brady, is is that going to be enough against Seattle or will it take a different kind of approach? Well, it could take a different kind of approach. It will really depend on how each of these teams take care of the football. Obviously, you could say that with any game, but in more, more so with this game because it's going to be so cold. I mean, this may be the coldest game right. in NFL <laughs> history from everything that we're hearing, and, and that will play a factor in the passing game because, you know, a lot of times quarterbacks struggle to grip the football effectively in the cold weather because they can't feel the grip of the football, which means they'll have or a tendency to be a little bit more inaccurate because of the lack of feeling off the, the, their fingertips. So they're not going to be able to feel the ball come off quite the same way they would with a little bit warmer temperatures. So that's going to play a factor in the passing game. Uh, you talked about the running game, both teams really needing to kind of hit home and establish the line of scrimmage at the beginning of the game. Uh, I think it'll be interesting to see the matchup between the Seattle Seahawks wide receivers and the secondary for the Minnesota Vikings, which has really come on uh, since they've gotten back, you know, Harrison Smith and Andrew Sandejo kind of in the back end. Um, those guys were banged up a bit. And now they're playing at a high level. And Doug Baldwin's had a fantastic season in, in, in part the second half in particular. Uh, but Tyler Lockett emerged as well. Um, and, and, and even Cooper Health at their tight end, who's really stepped in well for the injured Luke Wilson, yeah. who stepped in for the injured Jimmy Graham. So they've got some options, <laughs> right, right. but that's the side of the football that I'm curious to see if they'll continue to have this sort of productivity because of uh, how prolific really Russell Wilson was this year for the Seahawks. Um, you know, he set a bunch of records for the Seattle Seahawks organization as a quarterback, uh, which was pretty remarkable. But that, I don't know if it's going to be easy as people think. You know, the Seattle Seahawks are, are a road favorite uh, by four and a half points at this point in the week. And I kind of look at that matchup thinking and it may be a little tougher than they think. The offensive line struggled versus some of those better pass rushing teams. I think the Vikings have that. You know, Robinson on the outside, Anthony Barr stepped I mean, Linval Joseph on the inside. I mean, they've got some, they've got some legitimate disruptors up front. So I think this game is going to be a lot closer than people think. Uh, but in the end, I think Seattle is going to win it by a close margin. Yeah, I, I think I'm leaning that way too, Brady. I, I think some of the disruptive stuff, basically, if I'm trying to think in my head how this could work for Minnesota, you know, I presume as you do and as it appears off. Uh, Las Vegas does that that Seattle is and should be the the, the favorite especially after what we just saw them do to uh, in a road game against the Cardinals but I just I'm trying to figure out what the Vikings could do and look through their schedule and what they had done this year where they faced a team like this where they could meet sort of fire with fire you know can can Teddy you know for, throw for even over 250 yards like, can they get a score through the air can can they survive if if Seattle just packs the box and you know brings Cam Chancellor down and says dude you're not going to run with Adrian Peterson today what else you got and in that case you know we're talking about a lot of young people Corderell Patterson bar- barely has a role in the offense 
but he's he's a guy who makes plays in the special teams as a kick and punt returner. Uh, maybe some field flipping plays by him. Maybe a, a gadget play or two to sort of loosen things up with him in the offense. Something they did a lot last year. They haven't done much this year. Mike Wallace, you know, re, refining a role for himself uh, magically in the playoffs or something. But I know I'm really grasping at straws here because uh, it, it seems like the kind of game to me where you'll you'll see lots and lots of shots of Richard Sermon just jogging alongside one of their wide receivers. A lot of shots of Teddy and three and outs and, you know, just the game coming down to can Peterson run for 200 yards or something or not. And that's sort of the end of the story. But uh, as you mentioned, uh, uh, some of the disruptive guys on the defense for Minnesota and, and some of the better victories they've had this season have been in games where they've, they've made plays, where they, they just dominate uh, the turnover differential. You know, Griffin making a play off the edge. He made one you know, that caused a, a return for a touchdown last week against Aaron Rodgers. Uh, really needing something maybe from the back end from Harrison or something. You know, somebody, somebody's got to make a play over there because you feel like if it's just strength on strength, there might be a little bit more there with the Seahawks, but yeah. we will see. All and right. actually, to, uh, to your stat in regards to uh, Teddy Bridgewater, you know, he only passed for 99 yards last week with an interception 99, yeah. uh, in their win, but actually on the season, he is averaging a 201 yards passing a game, so uh, obviously not up there towards the top. In fact, it's probably towards the bottom or close to the bottom of the NFL as far as yards per game production. Uh, but, yeah, I'll be, I'll be curious to see how effective they will be Clearly, if they don't get the running game going, a lot of that play action pass deep downfield that he's been able to hit home at a few times this season probably won't be available. Yeah. Well, it'll be interesting to watch because, as you kind of alluded to earlier, there was a time in this year where Seattle was kind of where they are. I mean, they were pretty modest output. We're struggling to figure out the passing game. This is, you know, late September through October talk with them. But then they just they found it. Doug Baldwin, one of the more productive guys in the NFL now, as you mentioned, Russell having sort of a, a second half that made it a record exciting season for him really, uh, really kind of came out of nowhere. So uh, that they're definitely a threat offensively that I don't think we were talking about September or October. Now, I'm going to pivot here on to uh, some of the other games on the other side of the bracket. We'll go AFC, Kansas City Chiefs, a, a team that you once played for, now traveling on the road to Texas to play those Houston Texans, uh, who have been one of the bigger curiosities. I think we, we talked about on the other side of the bracket the way the Redskins came through out of a division that was really struggling. The Texans did the same on their side in the AFC. Uh, Indianapolis was just uh, well, it was a mess all season, although they continued to fight. Uh, the, the Texans with a couple impressive performances with sort of a Rolodex of quarterbacks through the year down the stretch, got it done. They have that dangerous defense. Are, is there enough there to, to knock off the chiefs, a team that has won, I believe 10 in a row. Yeah. They've actually gotten 10 in a row since starting off one in five, which has been incredible yeah. if, if you look at it, but uh, they've been aided a bit by a little bit lighter schedule. Uh, but to answer your question, yeah, I, I think the Houston Texans have, enough to knock off the Kansas City Chiefs. And it all starts with their defense being able to stop the run of the Kansas City Chiefs. That's where uh, Alex Smith and Jeremy Macklin and um, Tra Travis Kelsey has really turned it on uh, in the second half or, or during this 10-game run is once they started to establish the run, which was remarkable considering the injury to Jamal Charles when this team decided to really turn it on and rip, rip off this little win streak. But once they uh, have established the run, then that's when they started taking more shots downfield and actually opening up things in the passing game. And uh, that's something that I think the Houston Texans have the ability to take that away. Now, obviously they have J.J. Watt, but if Jadavion Clowney's back and he's healthy, that would be a huge factor as well, creating disruption in the backfield. Uh, and then their rookie cornerback, Kevin Johnson, has really stepped up. Uh, Benardrick McKinney at the linebacker position, he's really come of age as well. 
So they've got a lot of young pieces on that defense who I think are, are playing, I guess, you know, wise beyond their years at this point. And I look to have big matchups or big, or big you know, impact on this game with their matchups. Uh, but I personally think it's going to come down to uh, the decision-making of Alex Smith. You know, he's, he's not the most prolific passer. What he does we well is he's able to get anywhere from two, three, four, five first downs a game with his legs. He's a great athlete. He's smart. He's really diligent when he, you know, decides to, to take chances or, or take shots downfield. So this game's going to come down to that and whether or not um, Alex Smith is going to be able to continue to win that turnover margin and if the Kansas City Chiefs defense can continue to pass their quarterbacks. You know, obviously they have two solid edge rushers on the outside of Houston and Ali, uh, Ford along with that. And, and I think they can get after Brian Hoyer and make him feel uncomfortable. Biggest question is who's going to cover DeAndre Hopkins? No one has all year long. He's their only weapon, and he still puts up numbers, which is pretty remarkable. Now, okay, so well, one of the things I looked at with Kansas City that I thought was interesting, you touched on it, the way they just kept things going when in the absence of Charles. Charkandrick West has been sort of a darling if you're out there and you do uh, if you do fantasy football. He's a guy that has shown up week to week, although he was a bit of a question mark because occasionally Spencer Ware would get a high-touch game. But it has been interesting the way they've been able to run the football. Now, coming into a game and expecting to run against the Houston Texans, that can be a tough. Uh, and that that could be sort of the question mark, I think, that happens this game. Jeremy Macklin got knocked up, knocked around a little bit last week, was injured. I think he will be available in this game. But they could be down their top pass, or at least not down, but but limited in the game. So where Alex Smith goes, does it become just a him and you know, pitch and catch game between him and Kelsey at the tight end position, you know, working the ball elsewhere, and as you mentioned, just making first downs with their legs? Can they afford to go give 30, 35 touches uh, in a split carry kind of situation to the run game and, and still score more than, you know, 20 points or something like that? That'll be interesting to watch. But on, on sort of the flip side, the thing that's been weird – to me, uh, knowing how much that team was built around Arian Foster and then him going down early in the season, they still don't run the ball that well. And, and to think of, of of the Houston Texans to have advanced to this point, to have a, a home game and a legitimate opportunity to advance to the divisional round and be pretty inconsistent with the run game. I mean, they have there's they have running backs. I mean, clearly Blues there, and occasionally Hunt will get carries. It's but it's not one where you go into the game saying, hey, th- it might be the second or third element that you even look at to stop. You don't want to get gashed and give it away. But based on how they're built, you would presume, hey, Brian Hoyer, you know, gonna need that run game so that he can be effective off play action, throw some occasional shots to Hopkins. He's your big target guy. Maybe Nate Washington from time to time, Cecil Shorts, things like that. But the idea that they don't have the running game, which is what I think that organization has been built around for years and had, weren't able to make the transition with their second, third, and fourth guys the way Kansas City was, to me it's an upset. Uh, so I'll kind of go into that game saying, how the hell are they going to get this done? And <laughs> either one of these two teams that pull it off, I think are really a surprise team to advance. But obviously they play one another, so somebody is going to, uh, and somebody else is going to get a bit of a surprise team in the next round. Uh, we'll go here to the final game that we have in the AFC wildcard round, and we got the Steelers and Bengals. So you, you got the, the division rivals bouncing it off one another, uh, traveling to Cincinnati. Uh, Cincinnati's it appears at this time we're going to get AJ McCarron. Is that correct, Brady? That is correct. Yeah, and and I think the word I had gotten sort of. I believe this was yesterday. We're doing, we're taping this on a Wednesday. Was that? Uh, a, 
Dalton was out of the cast, but still not throwing. So, you know, we're, we're in a situation where I think even next week where Cincinnati to advance is speculative that he'll be back. So we're looking at AJ McCarron sort of driving this thing on. Uh, one of the things that I thought was kind of interesting and in what's going on with the Bengals, and I think they've been a little bit off the map when Dalton went down. They've been surviving their games. Uh, but it, I, was inter- I was interested in watching Croft make some plays at the tight end position because they also lost Tyler Eifert, who had been one of the more productive guys in the league, at the tight end position. And I thought finding some production from the young kid at the other tight end spot and him sliding in and making a play here and there for the last couple of weeks really helped. Then Eifert comes back. He has big game. He's back to normal, provided he's able to survive a playoff stretch with a guy that's had some head issues now. But I feel like sort of the complimentary piece stuff is so important for McCarron because we looked at this team a year ago and it was basically Dalton drop back, hope to God A.J. Green's not triple covered and, and see if you can survive that way. Now I think A.J.'s got a little more to work with than even Dalton did a year ago when they were entering the playoffs. So it'll be interesting to see going against one of the weaker, I think, defenses on the AFC side of the bracket. The Steelers, uh, not, not they are a weak defense, but they're just an inconsistent defense week to week. Who knows what you're going to get? I mean, they, they gave up points to the Baltimore Ravens uh, a couple weeks ago in a real surprise performance. So I think the Bengals being a little bit limited, not having their quarterback would obviously be at a disadvantage. But because of the particular defense they drew and one that they're familiar with, I think they got a fighting chance. You know, it's an interesting matchup to me because the weakness of the Pittsburgh Steelers defense is, is basically their cornerbacks. They have not played well this season. Their safeties aren't bad, but um, somehow they've been blowing coverages that just it doesn't seem, one, like the Pittsburgh Steelers that everyone's accustomed to seeing, but two, this late in the year, and it doesn't really make much sense from that standpoint. Um, but I do feel like their safety as well, Allen in particular, is, is solid in coverage. And even though uh, lacks the size to match up versus Tyler Eifert, I think could get the job done. Um, but it is a much better matchup for the Steelers compared to uh, Antoine Blake or, or William Gay. The other cornerbacks will be taking their place uh, versus a guy like A.J. Green or Marvin Jones uh, for the outside. So, to me, this game comes down to uh, which offense will be able to utilize their stars and playmakers on the outside. And you got to tip your cap to Ben Roethlisberger. One, because we've seen him do it before. But uh, two, because I think, you know, Antonio Brown's been the other wide receiver maybe outside of DeAndre Hopkins that we just talked about. It's been unstoppable. Yep. You know, no defense right. has been able to match anyone up on him and have a lot of success or be able to double-team him and have success. So he's going to hit home. He's going to have his production. Artavius Bryant's going to beat it. And this Marcus Wheaton, Heath Miller. I mean, they've got a lot of options. Um, the only downside to the Steelers right now is the possibility that DeAndre Williams is banged up with an ankle injury. We're not sure how yep. healthy he'll be for this game. So that could be a big knock on them. But uh, that being said, I, I like the Steelers in this matchup. I just feel like you can't trust A.J. McCarron. He's done well uh, when he's been in. But that being said, uh, this is a, a different level, different speed of football, one that you're very familiar with. I only saw in one season. Um, but I think that's going to be one of the hardest things for him adjust, to have to adjust to in A.J. McCarron is going up against some of the better defenses now in the NFL. Because of who drew who here, just the, the matchup to me is really compelling. As much as just where each team is, just the fact that it's them, that they know each other so well, the, the Steelers – man, if we were having this conversation a few weeks ago, as dangerous a group as is out there. Uh, Last week, Martavis Bryant missed a little bit of, well, he missed time. He was sick all week and was kind of a question mark right up until game time. Played in the game, but was real low rep, real low uh, target 
basically it was Marcus Wheaton and Antonio Brown. So they do get back to normal where they got the three-headed monster here going into the game. But one of the few teams that actually held them down pretty good in in Pittsburgh earlier in the season was this was the Cincinnati secondary. So I think they're probably one of the few teams that feel comfortable with their matchup against these guys. Not that they'll stop them or completely slow them down, but uh, it's one where I, if you were going to pick a secondary in the NFL to go against this particular unit, I think one from exposure and two from just the way they're built, uh, they're okay. I I, I, I feel okay with that group going against them one of the things and, and you you touched on it I think that could really be the swing moment in this is is what is the Steelers offense able to get out of whatever they have at running back that's been critical I mean Le'Veon Bell is one of the, the more dynamic players in the league he goes down having signed D'Angelo Williams in free agency was such a huge deal D'Angelo has been one of the more productive backs in the NFL and if they hadn't had that I mean I don't know if this, you know, sort of three-ring circus with the passing game of the Steelers would be nearly as effective. So that'll be interesting to see. It says, as the news as I'm reading it right now, he's still in a boot today on Wednesday. He, They're not ruling him out. He still may be able to suit it up. But how effective he'll be, we don't know. So uh, the rest of that roster basically boils down to Jordan Todman and Fitzgerald Toussaint. Those are your other two guys. Neither have had huge opportunities thus far. We haven't seen a ton of them. So it might be a situation if they don't have Williams at full strength, we see one of those Ben throws it 50 times kind of games. And if that doesn't go well, you know, I think that really heats up your Geno Atkins of the world and Pecco and the inside to really get after him. They, they'd love to know there's no run past conflict, but uh, it'll be a fun one. I'm actually leaning out. Again, we're, we're taping this midweek, so I'm not, exactly certain I'm there but I'm actually leaning a little bit with the with the Bengals just because the Steelers as you mentioned the defense has been a little consistent and it's not that full Steelers offense in my head that I'm so used to seeing if they were at full strength I would lean Pittsburgh but I'm not there today so let's let's as we pivot out of the four games we just touched on Brady as players we should probably touch on this because we've both been in the situation where there's been a coaching change. We've been on teams that are losing their their coach. We've been on teams that you know are have a new one coming in. Uh, what's sort of your your take on the landscape as we speak now? There's I still believe uh, six or seven teams available out there for new new coaching changes, and they're going through sort of the whole process of interviewing people. Uh, to me, the Giants are the primo job. Well, what do you see out there that would be appealing? Uh, I agree with you. The Giants are the creme de la creme right now, and in part because of of you know, part of the criteria that I think a lot of head coaches look at when you're trying to decipher which job is best moving forward. And it starts off with ownership. If you feel like you've got stability at ownership, a guy that you can trust, a guy that's going to give you the amount of time that you need to build that culture in your locker room. And then it falls on if you have a quarterback or not. So you look at the New York Giants, you say, well, they've got a a two-time Super Bowl winning quarterback in Eli Manning. I know that pains for you to hear that, uh, Matt. uh, I was a Jet then. I was a Jet then. Uh, well, well, so 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 still, even then, as a, as a former New York Jet as well. <laughs> there you go. Um, but uh, but that being said, you know the ownership there for the New York Giants has, has been been pretty stable for the most part. Um, yeah. And I, I think they probably just felt they needed to get Tom Coughlin out for to make change of change for change's sake. Even though he he seems to be a guy that teams are still talking about wanting to bring in, if not as a head coach, in some sort of capacity or role because of the kind of type of man he is, the type of coach he is, and how well-respected he is. But that being said, clearly New York's the number one, uh, which will be interesting to see if they stay in-house with Spagnola or McAdoo, uh, each of their coordinators, or if they'll go outside the box and look for someone else. You'd think that maybe Sean Payton would give it a look. However, since he's under contract, they'd have to work out a trade 
which has been done before and is possible. Uh, but I will say that sometimes the grass isn't always greener uh, in that right. case. And I'd be curious to see if Sean Payton would want to leave a team like the New Orleans Saints, who he's become somewhat of an icon, uh, bringing the uh, Super Bowl to the city, uh, in particular during a time where they needed it most. Uh, but besides that, you know, there's actually five other jobs, and uh, I'll try to list them out. You've got the 49ers, which is pretty interesting, considering uh, only giving Jim Tom Sula one year. Uh, it makes you wonder wow, why yeah. you would run Harbaugh out in the first place, and now it seems as if the GM, Trent Baalke, is uh, under hot water, and if things don't work out next year, maybe he's next to be fired. So then why would he be a part of the head coach search process, right? Uh, right because right. If, 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 if things don't go well in this head coach's first years, all of a sudden – Trent Bulky get the blame again. Um, yeah, it's almost as if they should have just made a clean house in the first place and started anew. Um, but it will be interesting, and I think that's another job that people covet, in part because there is some talent on that roster, but also because of the organization. Uh, San Francisco has had a lot of success. I think coaches look at how much success those sorts of organizations have had in the past, and they feel like even though Jed York is young, um, they still believe that he does rely on a lot of uh, intelligent people who are surround him to help him make wise decisions. The Miami Dolphins and the Browns, probably the two biggest messes uh, when you talk about organizations who struggle right now. Uh, the Browns, the one I'm very familiar with, have uh, obviously taken yeah. an outside-the-box approach. Um, they bring in Deepa <laughs> yes. uh, Destra, who, who is you know, obviously the, the Jonah Hill and Moneyball, if you've seen that baseball movie. Yep. Um, and, and he's going to be the chief strategy officer uh, alongside of a 39-year-old Sashi Brown, who's somewhat of an analytics expert. He has a Harvard Law degree as well as, uh, uh, I guess you'd call Dick Casta, president of the Baltimore Ravens, his mentor. They have both put, been put in a place where they were, uh, reside over the GM and head coaching search, and they will report to the owner, Jimmy Haslam, which is interesting, Matt. And, and I want to pick your brain for just a moment about the structure that you saw in New England because – I look at that and I say it's Bill Belichick who has a direct line to Robert Kraft. And clearly, they've built a dynasty and they're you know, arguably one of the best organizations in the history of the NFL. Yet, you've got the Browns now who all of a sudden feel like they need to throw uh, <laughs> complete caution to the wind, go outside the box, bring in a baseball guy and a guy who's got very, very little personnel experience to handle a job that entails personnel decisions. Why do you feel like a team or an owner would ever make this sort of decision when you have all these other examples, whether it's the New England Patriots or the Seattle Seahawks, of teams who allow their head coach to have a direct alliance to the owner, and he is the final decision maker? Why in the world do they do this? Yeah, it doesn't make uh, – desperation probably. Uh, they're probably looking at themselves in the mirror and saying, we've just tried 10 things, it didn't work. Let's try something else. And I'm not saying that that's wise. It's just, uh, yeah, I, I don't know if, to be honest, I think there's probably a, a look in the mirror kind of situation for them and understanding theirs is not probably appealing enough to get a guy who's competent enough to both coach and shop for the groceries, as they say, you know, like the old, uh, you know, Mike Holmgren's of the world who was there as a GM a while back. Uh, those, those people that have, or, or Shanahan, Mike Shanahan, who's obviously, you know, doing the rounds now and, 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 and taking an interview, doing the interview circuit, those kind of guys that have the experience that you would trust to make personnel decisions and also coach the team, or at least have personnel insight. 
I don't think they want this job. I think they look at Haslam and say, you're going to have to prove to me that that's not a chaotic place. And we'll talk if that vacancy is there five or six years from now and shoot, if it is, well, then maybe the chaos didn't change. But I think they probably look at themselves and say, hey, we're going to have to fix this without a traditional model because people aren't going to want to come here. I mean, I think you look at young coaches like like Eric Mangini, he took it at his, as his final shot. And I think he'll be it'll be tough for him to ever get another one because he took that job, didn't go well for him in what's, you know, a place that's often a mess that does quite a bit of turnover. And by virtue of taking that and then not working out there, it costs you the ability to get other jobs later because there's, there's a stain on you. And so I think there are going to be those coaches. I've I've talked this uh, with some other, some other people in the league that had some insight on this stuff. And they say, you know, you're, you're looking at a first timer. You're looking at a guy who, who's probably not getting offered any of these other six vacancies or the other five vacancies. You're looking at that one coach who just needs a gig. Uh, and he's probably not going to be the kind of guy that you'd want to have personnel input anyway. So it's, it's not a good decision. It's just the decision of that I think might fit the position they're in. Now, now by virtue of putting some baseball minds in, in there, just because they have analytics background, I can't pick at it too much because I have no idea what they're thinking. We'll see how it plays out. But uh, I just think the Browns uh, are in a tough spot. I think one, of the, I th- one more last – I'm sorry, one last thought there on the Browns issue. I think if I'm a prospective coach, even if I don't have a ton of leverage and I haven't been a head coach somewhere else, first move is I don't want Johnny Manziel. I could just because the nature of the chaotic situation there in regards to flipping coaches, I also know that my prospects as a coach and my livelihood will be tied to the quarterback position. And I just can't, I can't deal with that goofball stuff. Well, that actually brings me to my next point because, you know, this sort of decision to bring in these analytics guys and think outside the box, I think would be pretty well accepted in other organizations. I really think it would be, I think people would think it's creative. Um, you know, it's innovative, but the problem is this. Haslam was actually the guy that paid $100,000 for a quarterback study, Matt, and it told them to draft Teddy Bridgewater. What did they do? He told <laughs> right, their staff, he right. told the GM to trade up and draft Johnny Manziel. He had his, his hand on that. He's been the owner that's fired three right. head coaches, three GMs, and, and 61 assistant coaches since he's owned the team, only since 2012. So for me, I'm saying this doesn't make any sense. It looks like desperation. And if this doesn't work out, which they need to give whoever the next head coach and GM is four to five years, but if this doesn't work out, now you're saying to yourself, get this guy out of ownership. Get get the (laughs) NFL to get involved. And I I know they're involved usually handling, you know, different search committees and and doing background checks and all that on these owners or people who want to, um, you know, by these teams, but it's like somebody needs to hold the NFL accountable because they're the ones that brought this team back as an expansion team in 1999 because of the passionate fan base, because they felt like, you know, they, they wanted to have them back. But unfortunately, they haven't been able to figure it out with the ownership process, how to bring them back into being what they used to be. And, and it will surprise people to hear this, but the Cleveland Browns used to be a really competitive, very good NFL franchise when you date back to when they first entered the NFL and since the merger, right. um, I'm actually writing on that for a website on football by football and touching on some of that, how Cleveland's lost their identity, but it's been in part because of ownership. And, but right. instead it gets put on these coaches and the players to blame, and it shouldn't be. But anyways, as we move on, you, know, you look at the Miami Dolphins, that's another position where it's, it's more a factor of ownership, and you look at how much power 
Stephen Ross has given Mike Tannenbaum, who yeah. I'm not sure what your thoughts are of Mike Tannenbaum, Matt, but it just seems like something where there's a lot of jobs right now. You could put the Browns in there. You could put uh, the San Francisco 49ers in there because of bulky or, or Mike Tannenbaum in that category because of the Miami Dolphins where coaches might say, I want control over this guy. I don't want this guy. Right. And now all of a sudden right. they're turned off because of that. Even if they like Ryan Tannenhill as a quarterback and they think he can play, he might say, I can't deal with the ownership structure and then him allowing Mike Tannenbaum that control. So that's what's going to be interesting to see is which guys decide to take these jobs and how they go about negotiating uh, the power structure within the organization. Because to me, I, I like analytics. But in the end, it comes down to the head coach having to have the final say because he's the one that is held accountable because of the performance of his players on the field. He's the one that's closest to it. And when you look at baseball versus football, Matt, the analytics don't really correlate. You have way more exactly. games in baseball. Exactly. You have way, it's a way, way easier sample size to be more accurate. And just the style of the game is easier to be more accurate. There's so many things that uh, go on in, in, in any given play in, in a game of football. So it's hard to then do to crunch the numbers to, to build out a very accurate assessment of that. But, sorry, I don't want to get off on a long change about analytics. No, that's I right. I feel like people still need to let the football people handle the power and all that, and they need to let the analytical people tell them and give them advice but not base everything solely on that. Yeah, no, I think that's that's right on that's right on the money. I, I think in the event of, of baseball analytics, it's much more true. I think in football, you need a football person to step in and say, yeah, but your, your spreadsheet's a mess because it needs to be filtered and that that is actually a relevant factor in that and your 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 data sets you know including a lot of stuff that doesn't pertain to what i need it to pertain to so it, football people have to be able to override decisions when analytics come into play in football that doesn't mean you don't need them i think you need your own data i don't think you should be using sort of third party stuff i think judging and grading and evaluating stuff in house and then using that data i think could be actually very valuable but as i said in the end uh, because look what it says in the spreadsheet and the coach saying, no, he screws up his assignment every third play. What are you talking about? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you, you need to have the football eyeballs. Uh, one final thought here, just sort of as I was scrolling through these, this, this, root, this group of teams, uh, it's interesting that the Giants, I think you would look at the Giants and consider one of the more stable spots because of Eli Manning. I think you would look at uh, really a unique situation there, though, because he is 35 years old. So the Giants job is sort of two-sided. It's, it's the Mara family. It's one of the best organizations in football. It's in the biggest market in America, one of the greatest cities in the world. Uh, you're the, you're the poobah there. I mean, the Jets are always sort of the, 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 other, the other sibling in town. But because Eli's 35, he might not be there as long as you are. You know, we don't know that Eli will be Eli, you know, into his 40s and all that kind of stuff like Brady and Peyton was even able to pull off. Where's Eli Manning at two or three or four years from now? And that might actually be less than the life of the deal you're looking for to do with that team. So it might be interesting to see how those things transition. Not going to change the, the appeal of the job at all. But uh, I think it'd be kind of interesting to look at. The other thing I was interested in, you, you touched on this earlier with the Browns thing about power structure and how you're going to negotiate the deal. If I'm doing a deal with the Browns right now and I'm that coach that needs the gig, but I don't need to sort of torpedo my career and chase in it. Say like a Josh McDaniels or say like a Matt Patricia, a defensive coordinator for the Patriots that has been named and sort of starting to uh, interview in some of these jobs. 
I would want to know, I wouldn't just want cash. You know, I would want, I won't want guarantees that keep me the coach for at least three years. And I know that sounds weird because usually, Hey, you know, fire me, screw it. I'll pay, get my paid my next year. You mentioned a guy should at least get three, maybe even four or five, whatever till you get in, implement your system and stop this turnover crap. Uh, it would be interesting to see if someone could pull off a contract that not only guarantees the money, but guarantees the time in office. It's like, dude, you can't fire me in two years. Okay. You have, I'm guaranteed not three years of money, but three years of the job. But now does that disincentivize him to do good work? Well, then you have to find the right guy to make sure that's not the case. But it'd be interesting to see because Cleveland has done this so many times. It'd be tough to just convince someone, Hey, I want to be the next two year guy. That's a tough sell really for anyone. All right, buddy. Well, we're going to head on out here out of the show. Enjoy your weekend. Uh, Enjoy the games and we'll, we'll get back on this thing next week. Sounds good. As always, Matt, it's been fun. All right, buddy. Take care, buddy. You too. And that's all we've got for today's show. Enjoy wildcard weekend. And thank you so much for listening to the football by football podcast. As always, the FBF podcast can be found for streaming or download on footballbyfootball.com or blogtalkradio.com. You can download the FBF podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or on the TuneIn tune in radio app. For daily insightful stuff from guys like Brady, and myself and many others, check out the footballbyfootball.com Facebook page and make sure you give us a follow if on Twitter at FB by FB. See you next time. Thanks for listening to the Football by Football podcast. Football insight by football players. Hi, Lucky. Hi, Dusty. Good night, Ned. Good night, Ned. Good night, Ned.